All right, we're here with Mr. Stephen Abbey on another episode of a plant-based production podcast. Stephen's coming all the way down from Santa Barbara, representing SOS Nutrients. Stephen, so good to have you on the show, and thanks for coming up from coming down since you were just in San Diego. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we're going to discuss a little bit about your life journey and your experiences with health, nutrition, food, and a lot of the studies that you've dove into. Uh, let's let's first start off and your background and why you're so intrigued with health and nutrition. I went to University of Colorado and studied economics and psychology and anthropology. Those were my anthropology. I didn't get an actual major in, but I just loved all three of them. But they weren't exactly, once I got out, one wasn't exactly what I was going to go into. And then I just started businesses actually in what, 1991. And I've just been, the first one was like a 15 year that was um, manufacturing and exporting aircraft components. And then um, took some time off and traveled the world and did some uh, jujitsu and um, volleyball and then went into um, some other businesses, solar and things like that. But none of them were really my um, passion. This is truly my passion, health and healing. And the reason why it became that way is because um, I had several issues. Um, this was like 25 years ago. And one of them was really bad case of psoriasis. And then I was not doing well physically. I was just really feeling fatigued. And uh, my blood sugar was all over the place. Like I had something called reactive hypoglycemia. And, um, so I started looking into my own health and really did a deep dive on it. And what happened is, is the more I looked into it, the more fascinated I became with what was out there, like all these things to showing how to basically block getting cancer or heart disease, diabetes, autoimmune conditions. But I wasn't seeing it translated with doctors, even naturopaths and nutritionists always. And I would... I was just surprised. So I just kept looking into it. And um, after being involved with helping some people uh, at the end of their life and being really devastated by it, I decided to make this product because I did not see anything that was whole foods and comprehensive on the marketplace. So I, that's kind of the pathway that I got there. And I was in a, um, in a place where I had just sold a, my solar development company and, um, and I was, really excited to do something that I was really passionate about. And that's how this all came about. And we were talking a little bit ago, um, just before we started the show about how you were doing a, you were a vegan diet and you were super thin and you just said you weren't doing vegan the right way. Share a little bit about when you started going vegan, transitioning from a maybe standard diet with me and then went to a vegan diet and you claimed you're just not doing it the right way. And then you learned more, share a little bit about that experience of learning how to properly fuel your body. So I went vegan in 1991. So I was 24 years old and I went from a complete standard American, more meat centric diet and went to eating a very, uh, strict vegan diet. And I did not know what I was doing. Didn't know how to cook. 
Um, and so I really was not eating enough nutrition. I'll just say period. Um, but I also wasn't supplementing, didn't know how to really supplement. And I was doing it because I, um, read a book. I'm sure you've heard of, um, diet for a new America by John Robbins. Mm. And it was so impactful. I just decided to become vegan and, uh, he did a great job with that book. In fact, he was so, uh, impactful. I had him speak in Santa Barbara a couple of times. And, um, so I just, the reason why it didn't work is because one, I was playing competitive sports. I was running a business. I just had a very stressful life and a lot of activity and I wasn't knowing how to eat. So when I would go on a business trip, I often couldn't find almost any food. And so I was just shrinking away. And, um, and I also, I don't think a lot of times I would say eat at a Thai restaurant and I would get this huge amount of white rice and then a little bit of curry or something. And that's just not a healthy way to go. Um, and when I was, as I mentioned earlier, when I was um, part of Dr. Clapper's study on vegans, we tested everything and my numbers were pretty bad at that time. This was, I think in 2000. And then we followed it. I've been following those numbers before and even all the way up to present day. And I've been able to dial in all those blood numbers. And the important thing is there are specific nutrients that vegans are at risk of missing. doesn't mean that they have to, but they're at risk of missing more than uh, omnivores. Omnivores have their other own issues, obviously. But um, um, so things like B12, but everybody kind of knows that. And if they're eating or having plant-based milks, they're going to cover that B12. It's not the best form of B12 always, but they're going to cover the that B12. But then a lot of them are missing K2. Um, and not everybody agrees with me on that, but from my perspective, based on the research that I've done, vitamin K2 is one of the key reasons why vegans are still having heart disease. Um, not as much as plant, I mean, as omnivores, but it, to me, that is, would be a reason to make sure to get vitamin K2. Uh, then iodine, zinc, um, magnesium, calcium, and omega-3s. Those would be all really important to get. Um, and, and make sure that somebody's getting plenty of nutrition in terms of uh, enough food. Like for me, I was actually not really going well because I was, um, um, I was going to places where I couldn't eat almost anything. And so I was just really, a lot of times I would just skip meals because there was nothing there. So mm -hmm. that was a problem. Let's just backtrack real quick and B12. What's your suggestion? Uh, best way to take it or consistently get it and how much should someone be getting? Well, that's, that's a, a long answer. I'm going to sum it up this way. The best research that I've seen on it, and I've seen Dr. Greger's stuff on it, and I like where he's going with it. He's saying to use cyanocobalamin. Um, he's saying to use 50 micrograms a day. Um, I don't think you're going to hurt yourself with that. Uh, and that will cover it. And that's a good way to go. Um, I'm personally getting mine from a mushroom that's grown on a bacteria, the bacteria, which is that creates vitamin B12. So B12 is made from a bacteria. It's not from a plant or animal. Um, and the mushroom actually absorbs it 
and stabilize it. It's a, an oyster mushroom. And so I use that as the, the basis and I like his number of 50 micrograms. Like to me, that's a good number if somebody's vegan. Almost nobody that's uh, an omnivore needs that. Some people do. I think it's like two or 3% are have a struggle with getting enough B12. And that's probably an absorption issue more than anything else. So to me, um, um, that's the way that I like to go. But cyanocobalamin, which is kind of a synthetic nutrient, is actually works in this case because the base is grown by a um, bacteria. And then they, I don't know exactly what they do from that point, but it's considered the the synthetic version, but it's actually one of the few synthetics that I know of that really works well. All right. And then Dr. Gary Yurofsky, um, I watched a little bit about him and he mentions that it's bacteria, as you said, and can, I traditionally like do not wash my fruits and vegetables. Yurofsky says it's just dirt and bacteria is good for us to build up an immune system is that something that you can shed some light on and maybe suggest trying or is that a healthy way to get B12? Not from my perspective. It's not that he's wrong because, but in modern day, the way the, what we're using for putting, um, fertilizing the fruits and vegetables and the risk of toxicity that's a that's a real problem. I like his basic idea. Mm-hmm. If we were 200 years ago, I think that would be a fantastic way. We're, we're meant to be interchanging bacteria with nature. The problem with it is, is the way that we're doing it now, we're putting things like E. coli in, directly onto fruits and vegetables. So I personally would rather wash them. But um, So if know, I'm farming and I'm growing my own fruits and stuff maybe that's a different Absolutely. category than then i would definitely and do then it. then you could just not wash and enjoy that bacteria to a certain extent absolutely yeah so very different than modern day uh food industry and going to the grocery store and buying you definitely wash the fruit absolutely well for me i i think so i mean i'm not religious about it but the the truth is, is I, I think the way things are being done right mm-hmm. now puts us at huge risk like, I don't think we almost ever would get any, um, uh, you know, allergic reactions or, or uh, bacterial reactions from eating fruits and vegetables, except for the fact that there's cross-contamination. Mm-hmm. And usually that cross-contamination is going to happen in the kitchen, but it can also happen at the, where, at the source. Mm-hmm. Because of what they're using, they're using, you know, manure a lot of times, and they're throwing it right in with the, the soil. So... And that then becomes a potential contamination. And what about K2? Can you explain exactly what that is to the listeners and viewers and best way to obtain that? So K2, and it goes down a little bit of a a path. I think there's uh, MK4 all the way through MK14. So MK5, 6, 7, 8, all, all the way through 14. And they've been studied, and there was a study out of um, the Netherlands where they looked at K2 in the diet, and they compared it to heart disease, and um, they had 16 uh, micrograms a day or less compared to 16 to 32 and 32 and over. 
And it was a stepwise approach down as people got more and more K2, their um, heart disease risk went substantially down and their death from heart disease went down by, I think I'm going off memory, but it was 56% if I remember, it's in one of my presentations. And so to me, vitamin K2 is a key to having calcium go to the right place in your body, i.e. the bones, and not go into your, um, into your arteries. And it's controversial, I'll say that, but to me, it, it's clearly doing some positive things. Um, there are people that are saying that vitamin K2, um, your body can make it, and that's true. You have some uh, bacteria that can convert uh, K1 to K2. But um, for me, the evidence looks very clear that there's a real plus side to having additional K2. I think we were used to it. It's created by a bacteria. Um, the highest source of it on the planet is natto, which is, um, do you know what that is? Fermented soybeans. Mm -hmm. It's a Japanese dish. It's horrible stuff. I wouldn't want, I wouldn't wish that on anyone. It's not very good tasting, but, um, but you can't, that's the highest source. And I, you know, I sometimes put some of that in my smoothies and things like that, just because it's such a tremendous source of it. The, once you go from that, that's the best source on the planet, but then the rest of them for the next long ways down are all animal products. So it's like goose liver and then um, cow's liver and things like that. And, um, but they're a big drop from natto. Uh, there are some other ways to get in a little bit in sauerkraut and kimchi and things like that. Um, but uh, so the, from a plant-based way, Natto is the clear winner. I mean, you can, with tiny amounts, you can get a really effective dose. Remember I was talking about 32 micrograms mm -hmm. um, in a day. Uh, I think that would be of like, that would be three grams of material of, of like Natto, which is, a t that would be like half a teaspoon. So it's something like you probably wouldn't want to take just directly that way. And there's also a powder and the powder is four times more. So you could be like three quarters of a gram. You could put it in a, a tablet if you didn't want to. I have it in my product, but I also sometimes put it on top of that in the in the smoothie that I'm making. Awesome. So natto, I haven't heard that on, on the show yet. So natto is the best way to get K2. The best way to get K2. And there are powdered forms on Amazon that are directly from Japan that you can get. There's also... Um, can't remember. I think it's called Neobiotica and um, they make a great natto. It's from Canada of all places, but they do it in the old Japanese way. Um, and it's made with organic soybeans and everything. It's not an organic product, but um, it's very good. All right, Stephen. So let's dive into the status of Americans' health. And you were talking about on our Zoom call, the obesity problem and how that's transpired and out of control. And where, where do we need to go and what are some things that need to change and how can we help and encourage those to change? So I think people are so close to, you know, just being, we're, we're so used to what's around us that we're not seeing the tsunami of health issues that are going on around us. So I'll start with obesity and then go from there. But obesity is like just been picking up speed. And um, so you've seen them, the, the CDC hot maps of uh, obesity in the United States. And so in, what was it, 1984, um, I think the average rate of obesity 
for adults in this country was 11%. But then every year, it's just been getting worse, worse. Every year, in one direction, not in the other direction, always in the worst direction. As of today, according to the CDC, it's 41.9% are obese. And what does obesity mean? That would mean I would be 203 pounds for somebody my size. So 203 pounds, I'd be what, 40, 46 pounds more. That's a lot of additional weight. And that causes so many other issues. Diabetes is the obvious one, which leads to heart disease, um, cognitive issues, um, cancer, about 19% of cancers are now directly connected with obesity. But if you look back on history, um, in the late uh, 1900s, there was a, a study done to s determine the obesity level in the United States, and it was 1.07%. So 1.07% all the way up to currently 41.9%, and the CDC is predicting by 2030 to be 50%. This is a Everybody is massively moving in that direction. And obesity is not what people think it is, in my opinion. I'm going to do a whole presentation just on obesity. But it's directly connected with diabetes. Diabetes in 1958 was less than 1%. Now it's over 11%. Um, you have autism that's gone up by 200-fold, not 200%, but 200 times from 1985 till now. You have... Um, Alzheimer's that's gone up 170 fold from the 1980s to now. I mean, we're just, these are, these are horrible developments. And so I think we're too close to it um, to, for many people to even recognize this is really going on, but we are right now in a tsunami and we have to a great degree ways to solve this. Um, but some things are not even being addressed. Uh, I'll give you one example. Um, there was a study done on, on pregnant women that were, that were measuring their EMFs that were hitting them with a Gauss meter through the course of their pregnancy. And they had one point, they broke them up into three groups, 1.5 Gausses or less, 1.5 to 2.5 and 2.5 or greater, right? And in the end, the 2.5 or greater compared to the 1.5, those children 12 years out had six times the level of chronic obesity. And it's something nobody's talking about. And that's just like just in the ether sphere and almost nobody knows about it. So you also have fluoride that's been, our whole nation is being fluoridated to a, fluoridated to a great degree. And that is clearly what's called a goitrogen or blocks the absorption of iodine into the thyroid, which creates um, uh, obesity and all sorts of things, uh, fibrocystic breast disease, which directly leads to breast cancer, et cetera, et cetera, all these things. And so we've got these things coming down and unless there's a political will to address it, it's, you have to take personal responsibility and really try and undo these things. Yeah. It's definitely, uh, daunting. Yeah. Kind of normalizing obesity. Normalize and obesity, diabetes, and I mean, we've dropped uh, cigarette smoking by over, what is it, over four times now, or it's one quarter of, less than one quarter of what it was at its height. Why is our cancer rate still so high? Why is our heart disease still so high? I mean, these things both should be drastically affected. What do you think about the correlation between the sports industry and the fast food, uh, you know, fast food marketing and 
in their partnership. Do you I, watch sports? Like not really. You ever see like fast food commercials? I mean, I do, and I I mean, I watched the Super Bowl. It's the I didn't even know who was playing in it, but mm-hmm. I, I thought it was a great game. Um, let's see. So you know, it's classic uh American capitalism and I'm I don't have an issue with capitalism, but I do feel bad about the direction of this capitalism because it really gets really charismatic people that so many other people are looking up to following them over a cliff, essentially. So I'm not thrilled by it. Yeah. I guess for as much sports as I watch, I take very close note at how they're marketing and putting certain people in these commercials making others who are watching these commercials feel comfortable within their skin of being overweight because someone of a certain color is in that commercial eating Chick-fil-A and certain people with disabilities are in that commercial. So people with disabilities and they create this kind of outlook that it's okay to have these disabilities and be overweight as long as you eat Chick-fil-A and certain fast foods. And we don't really care about your health. We just care about you eating our product. And we're going to do anything in our power to market that. And marketing has become such a mainstream thing to get revenue that we're going in places that are really heinous and uh, disgusting in, in marketing tactics and you know, watching sports. Like no athlete or very few top-level athletes, if any, are eating those products. And yet we are advertising on a consistent basis, 24 seven, 365 fast food all the time on ESPN. And I think athletes and the the sports industry is huge. I mean, the amount of money that athletes get paid and, and, you know, there's so many sports. I think there needs to be a change within the sports industry and, and the fast food industry. And until that happens, kids are going to watch these sports and sports channels and think it's normal to eat fast food regularly and that it's almost good for you. Well, it's really too bad. And I don't know how to, I don't love regulation. So I don't know how, unless there's a grassroots effort around that. So, um, there are several things that could immediately be done that would um, bring things drastically to another direction. Like one, remember, um, cars, uh, had to have at least, an average of 18 miles per gallon. Do you remember that? That law came in in like 1978. So all of a sudden, all these cars, they were started getting much more fuel efficient cars. But think about this, if, uh, and I'm just totally spitballing here, but think about this. If um, fast food restaurants couldn't like cook in certain types of oil, they couldn't have um, certain, more than a certain amount of, um, uh, hydrogenated oils like or zero right that would be best or any types of created trans fats because when you take vegetable oils and you put it under enough heat for a long enough period of time exposed to oxygen they get rancid enough and you start creating all sorts of bad things right and then so they could do a bunch of things where and i'm not sure exactly how to do it but they could do a bunch of things to limit some of the damage and then they could say you can only sell x percent (laughs) that is um you know refined flour everything else has to be whole flour or something i don't know but that i i'm just totally spitballing here because 
the food is atrocious. And the reason why our kids are suffering so badly is because they don't have access. Like if they go to where their friends want to go, they're not going to be getting much nutrition at all. And they're going to be getting plenty of calories, but they're not going to be getting enough nutrition, which means that they're going to want to eat more, which means that they're going to get more and more overweight. And a lot of kids are still able to sustain not getting overweight, but just not being overweight is not healthy necessarily. Mm -hmm. So, and there's the whole skinny fat thing where somebody stays thin, but they're actually a high percentage of fat. And that's a kind of a more new phenomenon that wasn't really there 40 years ago. Yeah. And I think you could be skinny and be very close to a heart attack as well. You could be fit and, you know, cholesterol levels are high and I mean, there's all different types of scenarios. So let's um, go into a synthetic isolated nutrient and the difference uh, between a whole food nutrient. So synthetic isolated nutrients, um, which are essentially made in a lab, right? And there are multiple different ways to do it. Uh, the one that I always go to that's so easy is ascorbic acid or vitamin C and made in a lab. And so the main way that ascorbic acid is made now, used to be made pretty much 90% of the world's supply was made in a plant out in New Jersey. Now that's moved over to China and they now make 95% of the world's supply. And the way they do it is they take high fructose corn syrup. They put it under incredible pressure, incredible heat. They then do an acetone wash and then they neutralize it with hydrochloric acid. And in the end, you have a molecule that's chemically identical to what you find in nature. And however, it won't even cure scurvy. So the disease of that vitamin, vitamin C deficiency, it won't even cure. And the reason is, is because it by itself, it has no vitamin activity. What I mean by that is it will not do what it's supposed to do in the body because with out the cofactors and bioflavonoids and all the other things that it's required to be there for it to work are not there when you're made in a lab. And so that is the reason why what you get in dietary form is very different than what you're going to get in an isolated form. And you have all sorts of problems with synthetics and isolate. And when somebody takes a multivitamin, I'm not going to say there's not some benefit in there, but Oftentimes, it's cutting in both directions. There's benefit at the same time that there's not benefit. And then you've got all sorts of problems associated with it. So on my website, there is a study that was done. It was a meta-analysis of hundreds of thousands of uh, years, of people years, taking multivitamins. And they compared them, double-blind studies, compared to people taking them to not taking any. And in the end, they said zero statistical significance. Hundreds of thousands, we're talking about billions of dollars of money that these people spent and there was no benefit. If they would have eaten an apple a day or something like that, it would have had massive benefit actually, would have shown all these things, but it wasn't. And um, so I look at that and when I looked at the data, actually, when I detailed through it, um, what I found is there was a tiny benefit from people eating, but it wasn't statistically significant. But I would say overall, it still looked like to me that there was some benefit from taking multivitamins. So I won't say it's 100% miserable, but it's not worth it. Whole foods are just, if you look at say something like um, vitamin C and 
dietary vitamin C, people are still getting benefit over 200 milligrams a day. And yet for men, the RDA or recommended daily allowance is 90 milligrams and women, I think it's 75 and you're getting all, I mean, a good percent, almost half of people aren't even getting those levels, more or less 200 milligrams a day and people are still getting benefit. So those, the RDA will definitely keep somebody from getting scurvy, but it's not necessarily the optimal level. And the form is critical. And I'm going to say one last thing on that. And that is, so on my website, I have a study listed that was for vitamin C and they were looking at heart disease development. And they were looking at people that um, had more and more vitamin C in their diet. And the more they had, the more protected they were from going towards uh, heart disease. However, people that were taking supplemental vitamin C, the more they took, the faster they went towards uh, heart disease. And in fact, as the people taking the most um, supplemental vitamin C actually had three times the level of heart disease movement towards heart disease as the people that weren't taking any supplements at all. So it was a net negative, at least in that study. It's not a hundred percent, but it shows the drastic difference between whole food supplements and ones that are made in a lab. All right. So you have a healing patient, let's just hypothetical, and we want Steven's top five whole foods suggestions that that person should be eating. If you can't limit it to five, you could have as many as you need, keeping it simple for someone to comprehend if they're watching and listening to this. All right, like I'm going to start this tomorrow. What do you got? So if I, if you wanted five, five foods to really stay healthy, mm -hmm. um, so one would clearly be cruciferous vegetables. Um, and that's the, anything that has a substance called sulforaphane, or that's actually what's created. Um, and that's would be like broccoli, cabbage, cauliflower, things like that. Uh, kale is also another one. Speaking, speaking of kale, um, those all have uh, good amounts of the substance called sulforaphane and it's so anti-cancerous and it's, um, it's very detoxifying. So there was, I know I keep talking about studies, but there was a meta-analysis of the studies on sulfur or on cruciferous vegetables. And in the end, people that were having three to four um, servings of cruciferous vegetables compared to ones that had one or less servings a week um, had a 30 to 40% across the board reduction in cancers. And to me, that's a huge thing. Uh, if anybody's ever worked with anybody that has cancer, that is a big uh, thing to lower. So okay, I got I to gotta jump in. Try to remember your next thought. Okay. Okay. So in the hospitals, when we're treating cancer patients, that's what we should essentially be treating them, feeding them, I should say, to start. And I, I think they're not, they're missing the boat and they're not feeding them cruciferous. I, I haven't had cancer, so I, don't, I haven't gotten fed meatloaf or anything. I have had family members who have cancer. And I know uh, another friend of mine on the show, his, his dad was getting fed like ham. And he was like, hold on, like, this is not happening. What do you think about hospitals and like, that's a huge, like faux pas in our society. That's horrible. So when my uncle was dying of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, I went down to visit him in the hospital. And so he was paying $1,500 a day and this was 25 years ago. And um, I went down to see him and he had Yoplait, 
orange drink, which was just like um, a soda. Yeah. Like, no, it wasn't even Tang. It was like a, a oh. soda. And then he had a cake and like he had zero nutrition, had tons of sugar, all like refined. I mean, it was just junk. And I was like, he's fighting for his life. He's taking an experimental drug for uh, chemo, which horrible side effects. And I was just like, they're not giving him anything. Like there's nothing for him, his body to hold on to, to fight this mm -hmm. dreaded disease. So, um, so you asked me about cruciferous for the, the hospital. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Oh my God. So, but curing something or re reversing something is very different than preventing it. So mm -hmm. if you or I, let's assume we don't have active form of cancer, right? Having cruciferous vegetable on a on a regular basis is really going to do a huge thing to keep it from ever happening. Right. So that's fantastic. But if you actually have cancer and you're now dealing with it, I would highly recommend, and this is, I'm doing a study right now or putting it together right now to do exactly that. And that is, um, I would be having a full dose of broccoli sprouts because broccoli sprouts. So broccoli of all the cruciferous vegetables, broccoli has the highest amount of sulforaphane. But broccoli sprouts at about uh, 48 to 72 hours have the highest amount there. And that's 10 to 100 times what broccoli has. So you can actually get efficacious doses that will block um, angiogenesis, which is the creation of blood supply to the cancer, which is key for resisting uh, metastasis. You can show in a Petri dish and as well in a person where they're getting enough of the sulforaphane in their body to actually block the growth and actually reduce the growth of uh, cancer. Not only reduce the growth, but it can go negative where it's actually killing it off. Um, you have the creation of apoptosis. So you have all of these potential things. And if you do like, there's a very specific dose. It's about one and a half cups, which is a ginormous dose. And so I'm about to do this study with another, with a doctor and um, we're going to do that, but we're also going to be doing turmeric with black pepper. We're going to be doing black cumin seed. We're going to be doing garlic in huge amounts. We're going to be doing fasting. We're going to lower our IGF-1. I mean, we're going to do a full court press because what I want to be able to do is demonstrate that somebody who's um, tests and or has been told, diagnosed with cancer, they have some choices to make. They can, they can, they don't have to go down this route. And there are many cancers that it's a wait and see. Many men, when they're diagnosed with prostate cancer, they, um, uh, it's a wait and see because all the treatments are so, um, have such consequences that they go, let's just see how this one rolls. Cause maybe it's not going to grow for a while. Perfect opportunity to pull out all the stops nutritionally and stop it. And this, these studies have now been done. There are all these things that you can do. Same with breast cancer. So I'm excited to work with one, to do it myself on myself and with this uh, doctor. Um, and then two, to start working with cancer patients that try a nutritional approach mm -hmm. in a healthy way. Yeah, that sounds amazing. All right, back to our second of our five preventable. Uh, let's let the helicopter go over for a second. Okay. Um, so you, we, we went one with cruciferous. And then we're on number two here for your taking everyday whole foods suggestion. Okay. So 
the second one would really high up there would be berries and i would get a variety of berries berries are by far the most nutrient dense fruits out there so i highly recommend people take a bunch of berries a day um you know you have so many different really amazing nutrients in there like anthocyanins in terms of uh, that are in blueberry anything with a purple blue tint to it it's not just in berries but it's it's really concentrated things like blackberries elderberries um, blueberries um, just really concentrate you even have some in raspberries and things like that but um, not as much as so. okay another pause because i'm just thinking of questions on the fly here organic does it have to be organic if i'm at sprouts or vons or whole foods can they be putting GMO pesticides on organic stuff too? What do you think? Well, that goes down another. Because that's, that's like a, and that's, I think that's a big common thought for me. And I think for others, especially a younger person who's, oh, it has to be organic. And then someone was like, well, certain things, maybe berries has to be organic. Although like avocados and bell peppers don't I'm like, what do you think on berries, organic versus non-organic? Well, strawberries are one of the, what is it? The dirty 12 or the, I forgot what the numbers are, but there's, um, I, I would definitely like with most berries, I would try and get them organic. And, um, basically you have several different issues. So, um, uh, not everybody agrees with what I'm about to say, but there have been many studies on comparing the nu nutrient density of, you know, commercial versus organic foods, right? And several of them have shown no benefit, but several of them have shown drastic benefit. And I choose to believe the ones that are, there's a substantial benefit. Um, I can't prove it. And I'll, I'll say not everybody that I really respect um, agrees with me, but that's what I've seen. Um, so one is the nutrient amount. Two is this whole GMO thing. Um, but a lot of things haven't really been GMO'd yet. I don't think there are many GMO blueberries yet, or I bet strawberries have been GMO'd, but I don't know it. Um, but yeah, when you're talking about, let's say soybeans or tofu, those are highly GMO foods, right? Um, or a GMO food. And so if I was going to have uh, soy, I would really want it to be organic to just make sure mm -hmm. that it's, um, that it's not GMO. And I think GMO is a huge problem. And one of the biggest problems with non-GMO or with GMO foods is the fact that they use so much pesticides on it. They just blast them, which is horrible for the environment, but it also leaves this huge residue. So if you look at soybeans that are commercial, but not GMO, mm -hmm. they, when they've tested them, they, it's either non-detectable levels of pesticides or tiny amounts, right? But when they looked at ones that were GMO, they had they were just flooded with it. It was like 50 times the amount. It was no comparison. And then organic, of course, had none in this case, in this study that I saw. So I would highly recommend uh, having organic if you can, one, afford it. And um, uh, yeah, to me, it's it's a better way to go. But you bring up a point, some things are more important than others. Like I don't have 100% of my diet because I eat out a lot, but almost everything that I have at my house is organic if I can get it. All right, on to number three. Okay, so um, I said cruciferous, I said berries. Like 
I'll say, I know it sounds strange, but nuts and seeds, which is so incredibly important for so many different things, healthy fats, the amount of vitamins and minerals, I mean, especially the omega-3s from like walnuts and things like that. But not only that, but they're super, I mean, certain ones are super anti-cancer, especially walnut and pecans. Those are the real biggies, but they all have specific nutrients and they're very heart protective. Um, there was a study done just generically looking at nuts and seeds and people that had five servings of nuts and seeds a week compared to the ones that had one or less had less than half the risk of heart disease. That's huge. That's our number one killer. And then they said, well, that's for meat eaters. So what about for vegetarians? So they did it the same study for vegetarians and it found the same thing. So it's not just that it's substituting for meat or something like that. Um, so to me, nuts and seeds seem like a great thing for skin health, for, um, just adequate nutrition without causing, um, obesity. So I'm sure you've seen the studies where, um, people are eating, they're in studies where they're eating literally hundreds of additional calories a day in nuts and seeds, but they don't have any weight gain or it's tiny. It's not what you would expect from that. So that's okay. it. And seeds being like pumpkin seeds, chia seeds, sunflower flax seeds, seeds, flax seeds, yeah. hemp seeds. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And do those have to be grounded up or? Some do. Like okay. flax seeds, you definitely want to. Um, and chia seeds, you wouldn't want to eat them. The way. You'd either want to have them in water and blend it up or, or they let sit long enough where they get really, they, they almost come like tapioca. Mm -hmm. A little chia pudding. All right. Yeah. Last couple and then we'll move on. So another one would clearly be beans. Um, beans are just such a, an important, like if you look at cultures that have the longest uh, lived cultures in the world, um, beans are almost always a part of their lifestyle. And so this group of researchers went around looking at what, what was the most important thing. And they came back to the fact that they had legumes in their in the, as a main course in their diet. And so to me, that is a great, like part of the staples to have in somebody's diet is, um, beans. Uh, that's just, I know it sounds simple, but it's actually a really healthy thing. I mean, everything needs to be balanced, right? But beans are a really good thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just had kidney beans with my kale salad. So oh I got God, two that out sounds of the healthy. <laughs> All right. Last one. Uh, so th that would be green leafies. So okay. green leafies are just, you know, from so, so much lutein, so much vitamin A, vitamin C, et cetera, nutrients across the board, um, many different phytonutrients. You know, you can look at the, the RDA of everything, like, you know, what I just said, vitamin C or vitamin A or vitamin K. These are really high amounts. But the truth is, is all the phytonutrients, like you're going to have lutein or sulforaphane or, you know, polyphenols, like all these things that are not necessarily on any specific, um, RDA, like there's no, nothing specific amount that you're supposed to have, but those are the things where, which really make all these phyto, I mean, all these, uh, plant foods really shine. I love all five of those. And I, I kind of, I've heard those before. And I think I basically abide by those five as often as possible, adding a variety of other things. What would someone be missing, uh, in the, vitamin supplement market to add to that not limiting to just those five of course there's so many different options within those realm of legumes and nuts and seeds 
what are some key additives to that to maximize if someone's on a whole food plant-based vegan diet? Well, so there have been several studies looking at vegans and what things they're missing. And there are things that omnivores are missing and there are things that vegans are missing the way it's currently being done. Now, if somebody does a really healthy whole food plant-based diet, they probably won't have as serious deficiencies if they know what they're doing and they're targeting certain things. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. Iodine. It's clearly something that a lot of vegans are missing. But it doesn't take much to go out and get a little bit of seaweed into somebody's diet, and that will change very quickly. Seaweed takes almost nothing to get over the amount where you're really going to prevent yourself from having any issues. So, um, so iodine is one. Um, another one would be vitamin B12. But almost everybody, if they're eating a vegan diet, is going to be having products that have vitamin B12 added. Unfortunately, most of those are not the best forms of B12, but it will definitely keep them from developing a lot of the issues associated with um, vitamin B12 deficiency, but that's another one. Another one would be the vitamin K2 that we talked about earlier. Like to me, that's a huge miss for the plant-based world. And I think critical for them to get that. Um, and you mentioned um, to get that through natto? Natto. And, and natto is, is such an easy form, but I would get it from a powder because- yeah. The natto powder is a concentrated form of the K2 because it's not destroyed in that. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and coming from Japan, they don't pretty much have any GMOs. So you don't have to worry about that. So it's not a, almost always they're not going to be organic. Um, but um, I'm not as worried about it coming from Japan. So that's just my belief based on my understanding of how they do their food supply. It's much cleaner than what we have here in the United States. So um, let's see. So vitamin K2, uh, what's another one? Um, calcium, make sure to get plenty of calcium and that's in whole green leafy vegetable. That's a good way of getting calcium. Um, magnesium, let's see, there was another one that I, uh, and zinc. And zinc would be uh, actually an important one uh, to get for vegans. Those are the key nutrients that vegans are missing, even in a whole food, uh, plant-based diet, that those are the ones that they're often missing. And when you're saying supplement with uh, zinc or K2, like how often for me and my own personal, uh, peace of mind, should I be taking some of that stuff and then other people can do it as they feel necessary? Well, so let's say zinc. I'll just break that one down. Uh, so um, there was a study done on men uh, looking at zinc and how much they had in their diet and what their testosterone level was, right? And um, there was a high correlation, but correlation does not mean causation. So they weren't 100% sure. So what they did is they took several, I think it was it's a small study. It was like 11 young men. Um, and they put them on a zinc restricted diet to see what would happen to their testosterone because they started off with really good levels, right? And they put them on a zinc restricted diet and six months later they checked and they had dropped their levels of testosterone by 73.5%. So it was about a little over a quarter of what it started out as. So zinc seemed to be directly connected. And then they took um, several men that had very low levels of testosterone and they gave them 30 milligrams of zinc and they jumped up 92.5%. So these were synthetic forms of zinc. 
and that's all they took. Um, it's very isolated and it actually worked. Synthetics don't always work. This is one of those cases where it did. So, um, but you don't need this bludgeoning of zinc because that was a lot of zinc that they use. So, but if it was in a whole food form way, you wouldn't need this massive dose. You could have 10 or 12 milligrams and that would be plenty. And it would be gentle and your body would slowly utilize it and you would build this nice base of testosterone. I've been keeping track of my testosterone for 25 years. So how you get these nutrients um, and what you take them with. So these people were only taking zinc. So if that's all they wanted to absorb, that was a much easier way to do it than taking a tablet that has 30 nutrients in it or something like that. All right. So last couple things and then we'll kind of break it down here. Um, let's talk about some skin health and beauty since you're so glowing um, and, you know, age spots and wrinkles and that's such a, you know, we all want to look younger and I think tighter skin is, is some of the positive effects and that I've seen from, you know, transitioning to a plant-based lifestyle. Um, elaborate a little bit about, you know, your suggestions and findings and, and what you can shed some light on there. Well, so there are two different things. So um, wrinkles and age spots. So age spots are really just an oxidation issue. So making sure to have plenty of of antioxidants is key. And there is um, there are charts of ORAC values or antioxidant levels of different foods, and they can vary drastically. From my perspective, those are rough guidelines. Like a green leafy, let me give you an example. Um, spinach is at like 1,700 ORAC uh, units, right? But if you look at amla powder, it's 261,000. So over a hundred times. Do I think that it has over a hundred times the, mm -hmm. the antioxidants? Absolutely not. Do I think it's incredibly packed with antioxidants? Absolutely. But there's, there's gotta be some, there's something missing there because spinach is an amazing thing. And it's actually been studied for skin health, not just spinach, but the lutein in it and all, all these other specific uh, phytonutrients that come from it. Um, along with many other things. And it's very protective of skin health. A lot of the carotenoids specifically, lutein, um, what was it? Uh, retinol, there were, there were all of these ones where they were looking at the, um, uh, the skin health and they were actually looking at cancer risk as well. And it was like over a 50% reduction as the highest compared to the lowest. So it's just a small thing. You just lowered your cancer risk drastically as well. Um, so, so one, just overall antioxidants, um, that will help not only with age spots, but will also help with wrinkling and then hydration of the skin and omega threes. Um, that seems to be key. So making sure to get plenty of, um, you know, either an algae extract that has, uh, EPA and DHA um, which I think is a great way of going, but also flax and chia and walnuts and hemp and things like that are fantastic forms of omega-3. Do you sprout this Doug Evans? Are you familiar with Doug Evans on Instagram? He's, mm -hmm. he's like Insta fame, I think for sprouting. 
Mm. You mentioned broccoli Oh, somebody sprouts. just recommended I go check something out of it. <laughs> okay. I, I don't follow too much. I need to get into sprouting. He is, you mentioned broccoli sprouts have a ton more value than the broccoli floret. Have you experimented with sprouting? Can you sprout anything? And You can sprout a lot of things. So pretty much everything can be sprouted. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not an expert in it, but the one thing that I uh, have looked at is some like the vitamin C content, the antioxidant content, and a lot of the, the it's called, what is it called? Micro uh, greens and things like that. They have like six times more of all of these like phytonutrients. Uh, it's pretty amazing. So mm-hmm. I don't know enough about it, but to me that wouldn't, I would not be surprised to see that being the wave of the future of really high quality nutrition where it's in top level restaurants and things like that. So yeah. All right. Last question. And then we'll uh, wrap it up. I've been asking this to all my guests, the key to life. So a little more of a holistic question. What do you think the key to life is, Stephen? Well, I think um, the key to life, well, that's, that goes way beyond nutrition. uh, And that really goes to be, you know, what is your, what is your passion in life? What's your drive? What do you, what makes you get up in the morning? What, what gives this, you know, going around the sun worthwhile, you know? So to me, that's, that's what it is like finding what that passion is and really following it and bringing in the support around you and getting into that place of really connected where you can springboard into it. Do you feel like you found your passion? I have though. This has not been easy, but it is, it's definitely my passion. Like I, and I feel like it's developing a momentum in a direction that is super exciting. Like the, you know, a year ago, the idea of doing a study on cancer to basically demonstrate that it could be, you know, at least shown to be reversed would seem like pie in the sky. And now I'll be surprised if I don't do it in the next six months where it started in the next six months. That's amazing. Well, we're all looking forward to hearing and finding out the results. I know I am. And Hopefully have you back on the show sharing those results. So thank you so much. Thank you. Really appreciate it.